The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, continuing our study of John this morning, and we looked last week at the very familiar story of the woman caught in adultery in the beginning verses of John chapter 8. And we talked about the fact that these verses don't appear in the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. The story is missing from the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. So nothing before the 5th century has this in it. And most New Testament scholars don't think this was originally part of the Gospel of John. It was added centuries later. Now, we talked a lot about this last week. Just let me say that, you know, I personally believe that this event happened in the life of the Lord, and it was passed down orally from person to person as they did, and eventually someone decided, you know, this needs to go in the New Testament. And and in different manuscripts, they find it in different places. Some places it's in Luke, some it's in John, and different places in John. So, I I think it was a, a true story that happened, but... Originally, it wasn't in this text. So, here's what we're going to do. Let's go along with the majority of New Testament scholars, and let's assume that when Lazarus wrote the Gospel, he didn't include this material in it. Let's say that that story is not original in the Gospel. Let's take the brackets, as it is in most Bibles, at face value, and we'll go from verse 52 of chapter 7, jump to 12, as Gary did in the reading. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to ignore the brackets, and you'll see that the the story fits, and it it makes sense without that in there. I don't think there's a problem having in there. Some people say it just doesn't fit, throws everything out. It does throw your timeline off a little bit, but you'll see as we look at this. Verse 52 says, They answered him. Now, these are the Pharisees, and they're talking to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is questioning the Pharisees. He's saying, hey, wait a minute, our law doesn't allow that to happen. And they said, so, you know, they come back as good arguers of Scripture, good debaters. You know, they go, oh, you're not from Galilee also, are you? They're making fun of them. You know, oh, you want to be from Galilee? You a hick too? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So that's their argument. They just want to make fun of them. That's a good debating tactic. You know, make fun of your opponent. Um, And then we jump from there to 12. Then Yeshua again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, who is the them that Yeshua spoke to again? Yeshua again spoke to them saying, I think the them here is the crowd that is in the temple on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. He has just said in verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Then, Yeshua again spoke to them saying, so he says, if anyone's thirsty, come. And then again, he says to them, the same people. Now, if you follow down from verse 37, 37 and 38, Yeshua is talking, 39, Lazarus gives us an interpretation, this spoke of the Spirit. But verses 40 through 44, there's a discussion among the crowd. You know, the crowd's talking to each other. And then 
The Sanhedrin in verses 45 through 52 have some exchanges back and forth. And then if you put, look at it that way, then 8.12 follows nicely from 7.37 to 39. So now he says to the same crowd, I am the light of the world. Now if you take those verses out, it's the same day. Because verse 53, which is really not in the text, says everyone went to his home. So everybody didn't go to their home, everybody's still there, okay? Same context, same setting. Now, we talked about this when we talked about, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me. We talked about the tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles, and what it means. I want to go over that a little bit and give you some new information here on this feast, because this feast is the background for understanding what Yeshua is saying. The Feast of Tabernacle, one of the seven feasts of Yahweh that are listed in Scripture, it was a week-long feast. It happened in the fall, in the month of Tishri, from the 15th to the 22nd. It came five days after the Feast of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was known in Judaism as the most joyous and longest of the festivals. It was also considered to be the greatest of the feasts. I mean, this was a celebration time. It was designated by Yahweh as one of the three pilgrim feasts, in which all men that were part of the covenant nation of Israel must appear before Him in His sanctuary at Jerusalem. So no matter where you lived, if you're a Jew, you got to travel, you got to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Now the actual feast lasted seven days, and then there was a sacred assembly on the eighth day. Each day of the feast, sacrifices and offerings were made to Yahweh on the altar in the temple of Jerusalem. Now by the end of the seven-day feast, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, 70 bulls had been offered to Yahweh in sacrifice. Now, do you remember what the significance of that 70 bulls was? Anybody remember? Okay, it was connected with the nations of the Gentiles, okay? Because Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. The Feast of Tabernacles not only looked backward to the Exodus experience, and God's leading them out of the Exodus with the pillar of fire through the wilderness wandering and delivering them into the promised land. But it reminded them of their mission to the nations of the world. See, Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Now, they failed miserably at that, but that was their calling. And that was the reason 70 bulls were sacrificed during this feast. One bull for each of the 70 nations which originally composed the nations of the world before the Tower of Babel, when Yahweh turned over those nations to lesser gods and then called Israel to Himself. So He rejects these nations. He says, I'm done with you. I'm tired of you. With you. I'm you're turning you over to these gods. I'm going to be the God of Israel. But as soon as He calls Israel, he calls, as soon as He calls Abraham, He says, you're going to be a light to the nations. So as soon as He rejects these nations, He says, I'm going to call these nations back to Myself. So at the formation of the covenant at Sinai, Israel had been set apart as God's holy nation to be a witness to the one true God to the other nations on the earth. And that's why the temple in Jerusalem was built with a special court for the Gentiles, to allow the Gentiles to have a place to come and be instructed in the covenant. It's a place for the Gentiles to pray to God, the God of Israel, who was the light of the world. Now, it was during the Feast of Tabernacles, if you remember, when Solomon built the temple, David wasn't allowed to build it, Solomon built the temple, when the temple was dedicated, 
He dedicated it during the Feast of Tabernacles. And at that ancient observance of tabernacles, the Shekinah, the glory of Yahweh, descended from heaven and lit the fires on the altar. So, you know, that made tabernacles really special to them. And it connected it with the tabernacle, with the temple. The fire of God comes down, and they've witnessed that during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, those are all things we learn about the Feast from the Scriptures. But beyond that, the Mishnah, which was the oral tradition of the Jews, indicates that during the intertestamental period, two other major rituals were added to the Feast of Tabernacles. There was a procession with a pitcher of water, and we talked about this last time or a couple times ago. The pitcher of water where the water was poured out before the Lord, and that's when Yeshua stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. You know, during the water libation, during the pouring out of the water. But there was also a special ceremony involving the lighting of the court of the women. Both light and water played a really important part in the symbolism of this Feast of Tabernacles. And that's this is the background for Yeshua saying when He says, I, if anyone's thirsty, we're pouring out this water, we're reminding that God gave the children of Israel water through the 40 years of wandering. Now He says, I'm the light. He's again reminding them that during that wilderness wandering, God was a light to guide the children of Israel. Light recalled the glory cloud of Yahweh that led Israel through the wilderness, the pillar of fire. It was the light of the presence of God. In Hebrew, it's called the Shekinah. You probably heard it referred to as Shekinah. Alright? Well, in the Hebrew, it's Shekinah. It's the Shekinah glory, which made the cloud shine. And light was a symbol of God's presence. It was a symbol of His presence in the temple. You familiar with this? The menorah? In the tabernacle, Yahweh commanded that the light of the golden menorah be lit it kept burning continuously as a sign of His presence. This was never to go out in the tabernacle. It was always to be lit because that's what it represented. According to Leviticus 24, 1-4, it was a sign of the presence of God. Now, in the center of the court of the women, now, I don't know, you can't see them all that great, but there's four huge candelabras there. i got a pointer on here. Do I know how to use it? Yeah, see them right there? If you're watching online, you can't see it. Okay, for you over here, right there, the candelabras, all right? They had these four huge candelabras, these menorahs. They stood on bases that were 50 feet tall. You understand how tall that is? That's a five-story building, okay? These are big, all right? And according to the Mishnah, the flames of the menorah were holy fire because they burned from wicks made from worn-out fabric from the priestly garments. According to Mishnah Sukkos 5, 2-4, each menorah had long ladders leading to the lamps, which periodically were refilled by young priests. <laughs> I love that they add that there, young priests. Okay, the old guys, you don't got to worry about it. Get the young guys up those, up those ladders to light that stuff. All right, keep that, keep that oil going. That's quite a climb on a ladder, by the way. Okay? <laughs> So they're, they're climbing up 50 feet with oil, you know, and they had to have a lot of oil because these are huge things, all right? Pouring buckets of oil in here to keep these things going. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles began in the middle of the lunar month, all right? So the harvest moon would have been full, autumn sky would have been clear. 
And the outline of the Judean hills was clearly visible in the moonlight. And against this backdrop, the light of the temple celebration was breathtaking. There was a lot of gold in that temple, and so it would just shine from these menorahs. And I mean, this thing would just light up the skies, light up Jerusalem. It was a sight that, you know, anyone who saw it would not forget. All night long, the elders of the Sanhedrin performed impressive torch dances. So these guys are coming out and they got these torches and they're going through this while the flames of the menorah light up the temple. The streets of Jerusalem are just totally lit up from this. Now soon after the celebration was underway, a group of Levites in the inner court that was known as the Court of the Israelites, they get together and once they formed, the group of Levites would move through the Nicanor Gate to stand on top of the 15 stairs leading to the Court of the Women. The sound of the temple flutes, Trumpets, harps, and other stringed instruments played as the Levites sang. They sang the 15 Psalms of Degrees, which is Psalm 120 through 134. And with each Psalm, they would descend down another step. Now this celebration was repeated every night, from the second night until the final night, as a prelude to the water drawing ceremony the next day. And nothing in ancient Israel compared to this light celebration. It was so spectacular that the ancient rabbi said, He that hath not beheld the joy of the drawing of the water hath never seen joy in his life. Sukkah 5.1 The light celebration was reminiscent of the descent of the Shekinah glory in Solomon's day. And they looked forward to the return of the glory of Yahweh. See, that's what part of this feast was. They're looking for the Messiah to come. They're looking for the glory to come back. So you realize the glory wasn't there. When did the glory leave? Ezekiel 11. We see the glory leaving the temple. Because Israel turned her back on the Lord, so the glory left. And that, basically, that thing during the time of Christ was an empty facade. There's nothing there. It was just a sham of worship. It was religion without God in it. Okay? That priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies. You know what was in there? Nada. Not a thing. He's supposed to go in there and sprinkle blood on the horns of, you know, of the, 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 yeah, the Ark of the Covenant. And he goes in, there's nothing there. Had to remind him, there's not much going on here. You know, when the veil was ripped from top to bottom, I think one of the reasons the veil's ripped is to say, there's nothing in here. This is empty. This is a sham. All right. Now, scholars don't agree, which, you know, that's really hard to believe, right? <laughs> they, don't, they don't agree if the fire ceremony took place after the final water libation ceremony on the seventh day of the feast or the night before. See, the day began at sundown for the Jews, and so it's unclear if the feast began with the fire torch ceremony or ended and ended with the water libation, or if it began with the water libation and ended with the fire ceremony. So, we don't really know. What night it was, okay? We don't know exactly how the ceremony went because we don't have all those details. But we know what they did do there was they read scriptures over and over about light because this was their celebration. It was a light celebration. And the people were reminded of God's faithful presence that led them through the wilderness and thrown on that pillar of fire. And His promise to them in Leviticus 26 was, Moreover, I will make My dwelling among you, and My soul will not reject you. And so the people look forward to the time when the true light, the promised Messiah, the Anointed One, would begin 
again come back to end their suffering and to restore Israel, God's holy covenant people, so that they might reflect the light to the nations of the earth. Now on the last night, only three of the four menorahs were lit. And this was to be a reminder to the people of Israel that they had not yet experienced the full salvation of God's light and had not yet spread to all the nations of the world. The Mishnah tells us in Sukkos 5, 2-4 that they only lit three of them. That was the reminder. That one stayed unlit to remind them it's not over yet. It was understood that when Messiah came, God's holy light would reach every corner of the earth. Now, according to tradition, light was one of the names of the long-awaited Messiah. Let's look at some scriptures from Isaiah, which they'd have been very familiar with. Scripture they would have read during this, this ceremony. Behold my servant. These are the servant of Yahweh passages. Whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. It's talking about Messiah. You drop down to verse 6. It says, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I'll appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. So he's the Messiah is to be a covenant for the people. He is to be a light for the nations, the Gentiles. That is for the nation, Israel, and for the nations. Now the servant of Yahweh, the Messiah, was to be a light. They knew that. Isaiah 49, 6. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servants to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? When Messiah came, he would restore Israel. He says, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Again, we see here light is connected with salvation. Light is something that is specifically said to represent the ministry of Messiah to Israel, and also to the Gentiles. It was to reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will raise upon you the glory, will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So the nations are going to come They're going to because they're going to see the light when Messiah comes. Now, the events of the last night of the fire ceremony in the temple recall the manifestation of God's physical presence with them as He led them in the pillar of fire through the wilderness. So in our text, Yeshua is in the temple. He's standing in the court of the women with these huge menorahs all around Him lighting up and the fire ceremony going off. And He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then Yeshua again spoke to them. Now, He's speaking to the Jews who had assembled there for this great feast. Some of these were residents of Israel. Some of them were pilgrims who had come in from other parts of Palestine. Some from other parts of the world. Just The place was packed. And He stands up and He gives this, you know, Hey, I, he says, am the light of the world. Now, in light of what we have said about the feast, it's kind of a pun there, in light of what we said, okay, get that? The Pharisees didn't question the meaning of this statement. They heard him say, I'm the light of the world. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew this is a messianic claim. 
And they immediately call him a liar. They're familiar with the many titles in Scripture which ascribe light to Messiah. He is called, for instance, the star out of Jacob. He is called the light of Israel, the light of the nations, a refiner's fire, a burning lamp, the sun of righteousness. According to the idioms and symbols understood and practiced by the writers of the New Testament, the symbol of light spoke of the menorah in the temple. Yeshua was the fulfillment of this. He is the light of God. Alright? So let's go back to this menorah again. This is one of the oldest symbols of the Jewish faith. The seven-branched candelabra here is used in the temple. And it's been said that the menorah is a symbol of the nations of Israel, of the nation Israel and their mission to be a light to the nations. They're called, they are, Yahweh is in their temple. He is the light. They are to share that light. Now, I think this is interesting, um, that if you look at the word menorah in the ancient Hebrew, Hebrew has, the language has changed over the years, but originally, Hebrew language was pictographic. It was written like this, and it was written from right to left. They didn't do like we did, okay? So the first letter in menorah is mem. That's the mem there, and it depicts a series of waves on the sea. And this suggests various potential meanings. This symbol could mean chaos, it can mean mighty, it can mean blood, it can mean water of waves. In this instance, I want to choose the word mighty, and that will be apparent as we go on. The second letter is the letter noon, which is a picture of a seed. This letter can mean either continue, air, or sun. Since all come from man's seed, it's simply the idea of seed. But let's choose sun here for this instance. And then the letter resh, which resembles a man's head. This letter can mean first, top, beginning. In the ancient world, man was the head. He was the head of his household. He was the head, so this was top, alright? In this case, let's take the meaning of first for our purposes here. And then the last letter was, anyone know what this letter is? You've seen this before. This is the letter hey. Hey! That's basically the idea, okay? You see this guy here, he's trying to get your attention, alright? It means look, it means reveal, it means breath. But it can also mean praise or behold, now depending on how it's used. But here we'll choose the word reveal. Alright, so the menorah in the Hebrew pictographic language means the mighty sun first revealed. So even in the language, this picture of menorah is, is picturing the sun. Picturing the sun who is to be revealed. Now the temple menorah had seven candles with seven flames. And we know that these flames were to remind, remain lit at all times. This is always to be lit in the temple. It was intended to represent... The Lord being there, they all, it also represented the seven feasts. There's seven of them here. And we see the symbolism that it just refers to Christ because all the feasts were about Christ, all seven of them. So this pictures Christ. It's the, he's the fulfillment of this. Now, anybody know what this word is? This is the word Yeshua. This is in modern Hebrew. And what's interesting about this is you see the menorah symbolism, you see the seven flames on top of the name. I mean, that's kind of interesting how Hebrew does that. Just like the menorah, there's seven flames um, burning all the time. And this is, this is the Lord's name in Hebrew. So menorah itself pictures this idea of the sun revealed. And in the Hebrew, the modern Hebrew pictures this menorah, so to speak. 
The name of Yeshua is one of the few words in Hebrews that would exhibit this kind of effect. So Yeshua is making a claim, and I think they understand that. He's making a claim to be Messiah. And they knew it. They're familiar with the Messianic promises that came through the prophet Isaiah, the ones we just looked at, where Messiah is called the servant of Yahweh. But look with me at a passage in Isaiah that we didn't look at, and, and there's, this is this kind of ties back to this text, and I'll show you that in a second here. But Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times and treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali for contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. This is reference to Messiah. He's going to be a light. Those who live in dark land, the light will shine upon them. So here the prophet gives a picture of the ministry of Messiah as beginning in Galilee of the Gentiles, and that he's going to be a great light. Now the Lord Yeshua came from Galilee, and he's one who fulfilled this prophecy. And Matthew makes that very clear in Matthew chapter 4, 12 through 14. Matthew says, Now when Yeshua heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 that we just read. All right? So he comes from Galilee. The people who see dark, walk in darkness are going to see a great light. So Yeshua is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. He's the great light who comes from Galilee. Now remember what we read earlier. The Pharisees said to Nicodemus, has anything good come out of Galilee? Well, yeah, according to Isaiah, something good has come out of Galilee. The Messiah. And see, this just shows how ignorant these Pharisees were of the Word of God that they claimed to be experts in. I mean, this is all they did was study the Scriptures. They should have known this stuff. And maybe they did, and maybe they just didn't like it. Okay? Now, the light metaphor was ancient. You know, Israel, in ancient Israel's history, just represented the Lord. And the Jews associated light with the presence of God. So Yeshua says, I am the light of the world. And this statement, like those Yeshua made in the previous chapter, is connected with the Exodus imagery. We've got to see that in this text. If you remember back to chapter 6, Yeshua claimed to be the man. He says, I am the bread of life. And he was referring to the man in the wilderness that fed the children of Israel for 40 years. We come to chapter 7, he says, I, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. And he's, he's saying, I'm the rock. I'm the rock that Moses smote in the wilderness and gave the children of Israel living water for 40 years. And now in chapter 8, he's saying, I'm the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel, that guided them through the wilderness. It, this is all rich in Exodus imagery here. Each chapter, so he's just kind of building. So I think the, the primary emphasis here, you know, it's interesting, a lot of scholars want to argue, well, some say he's represent. you know, it's during the light ceremony, the torch ceremony, during the Feast of Tabernacles, so Christ is saying he's the fulfillment of that. Well, yeah, well, the purpose of the torch ceremony was to represent the pillar of fire, though. So they're all connected. Yes, that one represents the other. And the Lord's, yes, He's the fulfillment of that ceremony. He's the fulfillment of that torch, that pillar of fire leading the children of Israel. 
Let's look at Exodus in a couple chapters in there. In Exodus 13, the context of this chapter is the children of Israel's deliverance from the land of Egypt. And one of the ways that God gave them direction was by means of a pillar, a cloud of fire. All right? Exodus 13, 21 and 22. Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, in a pillar of fire. Now, a lot of scholars argue, and I agree, that the pillar... It's a pillar of fire. During the day, it resembled a cloud because of the sun. The brightness wasn't there. But when the sun went down, the bright, it was always fire. Fire represented the presence of God. By night, to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, from before the people. As the children of Israel make their way out of Israel, God is leading them. You know what blows my mind? I mean, this is a visible thing. Fire. You, you're watching it. You're, they're following this cloud. And then these people go to Moses and say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? I'm like, are you people crazy? You don't see that cloud, that pillar of fire leading you wherever you go? So they're leading them and the Egyptians are following them. Okay? And so in Exodus 14, it says, The angel of God, who had been going before the camp, and I think the angel of God here is Yeshua. Alright? He's going before the camp, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. So the pillar is leading them, but Israel, I mean, the Egyptians are right on their tail, so the pillar moves in between them to separate these two. And there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. So the children of Israel are fleeing. This is the Wadi Watir, which I believe was the path that Israel took when leaving Egypt to be free. And they're heading this way down the Wadi. Alright? These wadis are familiar over there, and this is a dry riverbed. When the floods came, this thing would turn into a river. Alright, so they're going down here. You can see they got cliffs on each side. There's not a lot of ways out of this thing. And the arrow's pointing there to the beach at Nuebe. This is from the other end. This is a satellite photograph. They're coming down this way, down the wadi, to the beach there at Nuebe. Um, Exodus 14.12 says they will encamp by the sea where the desert shut them in. And I think that's on this beach right here. This beach was four and a quarter miles long by two miles wide. And the children of Israel just come down here and they're stuck on this beach. And the Egyptians are coming down the wadi after them. So what do they do? Well, the Lord took care of that. Because they can't get down there because there's a pillar of fire now, you know, between them. And this pillar of fire is there while the, you know, Moses lifts his rod, parts the sea, and they go through from the Waybay beach, they go across. You know the rest of the story, alright? So the angel of God is there. He's protecting them. He is leading them. The, the, the Egyptians can't get through because of this. Then in Numbers 9, Moses gives some instructions to the children of Israel concerning the guidance of the pillar and the cloud. It says, Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle. So they took the instructions that God gave them. They built this tabernacle. And when it gets done, all of a sudden, this cloud, this fire comes down. And in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. 
Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out, in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. Alright, you talk about divine guidance. Alright, divine leading. This is an artist's picture of that. Can you imagine being Israel? And they got this pillar of fire. Now the Israelites come out of their tent in the morning and they look up and they go, yep, cloud's still there, we're staying. They come out in the morning, the cloud's moving out. Okay guys, pack up, we're going. They didn't get up in the morning, Lord, we pray that you would guide us. They just looked up, they knew he was guiding them. Alright, they just followed, that's all they had to do. And when Yeshua said to them, I am the light of the world, He says, I am the fulfillment of this. I am the antitype of all that was signified by the pillar in the cloud. In the Exodus experience, the themes of Yahweh enthroned on a pillar of fire guiding the children of Israel through the darkness of the wilderness to the light of the promised land. And I think that prefigures Christ lighting the way for the new covenant children of God journeying through the promised land to salvation in heaven. He's leading them. He is guiding them. This is what He is the fulfillment of. You talk about clear guidance, okay? The Psalms speak of Yahweh as the light of life and the light that gives life. Psalm 56.13, which contrasts life and light with death and darkness. And in Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 119.105 describes the law of Yahweh as a light to our path. Whereas the absence of law brings darkness. So as I said, the Jews associated light with God's presence. And Yeshua intensified this by saying this. He said, I am the light. He's identifying Himself here with some very significant words. I am. Ehiah in the Hebrew... This is what God said to Moses in Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3. He said, who should I say sent me? And God said, Ehiah, Asher, Ehiah, I am who I am. Well, this here is Greek, it's ego, Amy, which meet, this reminds us of, of Moses in the I am. In John's Gospel, Yeshua uses this 26 times with seven different metaphors. Each metaphor used with a, partic- a predicate nominative. We already saw that He said, I'm the bread of life. And we saw when He walked on the water out to the disciples, remember, He he calms the sea, He gets in the boat and they're afraid to death. He says, I am. So don't be afraid. I am. He is claiming to be Yahweh. The I am of the Tanakh. The one who is the beginning and the end. The one who is the first and the last. The Aleph Tav. I am He. So when men heard the Lord Yeshua say, I am, they couldn't help but understand He's making a claim to deity. He's connecting Himself with light, which is God, and now He's using God's name. Light is one of the three things which God is said to be. What are the other two? What? No. God is... Oh, come on. Love. Everybody knows that. Right? God is love. What's the other one? We already studied it. God is spirit. God is spirit. God is light. God is love. That's what the Scriptures have to say. So when Christ said, I am the light of the world, He is announcing absolute deity by using the tetragrammaton. The yod heh vav I am. 
He's claiming to be light. But you know what we find in the Gospels, the disciples are told, you are the light of the world. And Paul speaks of Christians as lights in Philippians 2.15. Is that a contradiction? No. We, like John the Baptist, who was called the light, we are light only as we reflect the light of the glory of God. And that's our calling. We're to reflect the light that He is. Now, notice he says here, I am the light. It's not, I'm a light. It's a definite article here. I am the light. The only light. And he uses the word cosmos. I'm the light of the world. Cosmos. Lazarus uses this 78 times in the Gospel. Now, in contrast to the other evangelists, all the other three use it 15 times total. He uses it 78. And I think that's because He's got a global perspective. He's trying to show he's the God of not only the Jews, he's the God of Gentiles also. The world, he's the light of the world. It's not just for the Jewish people. And it also, I think, means there is no other light. The world has no other light. It's either Yeshua or it's nothing. It's darkness. There's nothing else there. Or Yeshua goes on to say, He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now the Greek verb follow here is in a present tense indicating continuous action. What does it mean to follow Him? He who follows Me. You know, if you pick up a commentary, many commentaries here list all kinds of things what following means. you got to obey. you got to do, you know, it's all stuff you do. Okay? So get you involved here. you got to do something, right? I don't think that's what our Lord is saying at all, and we can actually get from His lips what He means by this if we jump ahead to chapter 12. He says, I have come as a light unto the world so that everyone who believes in Me will not remain in darkness. Look at these two. Verse 12, He who follows Me will not walk in darkness. Everyone who believes in Me will not walk in darkness. To believe in Him is to follow Him. To follow Him is to believe in Him. He's saying the same thing, just like He said throughout the earlier chapters. To come to Him was to believe in Him. To drink from Him was to believe in Him. This is what He's calling for here. He's calling for these people to trust Him. To put their faith in Him. That He alone can deliver them. Give them eternal life. He will have, He says, the light of life. And this is literally the light that produces life. He gives life. You know, Israel's possession of the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night marked them out as the people of God. What do you think their neighbors thought of this as they traveled through? You think that was like, I mean, how cool did you feel as an Israelite to look up and say, hey, yeah, our God's following us. Our God's leading us. He's here with us. The Egyptians didn't have that. None of the other nations had that. Israel had Yahweh with them. And they had Yahweh as their guide. Wouldn't that be cool? What about today? What about us? What marks out today us from anybody else? What marks out Christians from non-Christians? Does God still lead us? Does He still guide us? I think that marks out what marks us out from everybody else is the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are marked out from all of the rest of humanity as the people of God by the presence of the Spirit indwelling. And just as Yahweh led and guided the children of Israel by the pillar of fire, He leads and guides all believers today by His Holy Spirit. He leads us just as sure as He led them. Paul said in Romans, 
For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This is the possession of every believer, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, we often don't follow. All right? We're too busy with all the other things of life. You know, you know how caught up we get in life. that It's like we almost forget about God until maybe there's a problem or something. Then it's like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Let me talk to God about this. Every believer has the guidance of the Spirit. That's the mark of a son of God. We need to learn to trust Him. We need to learn to be in tune with Him. We need to pray that God would make us aware of His guiding and leading. It's real, people. It's every bit as real as that pillar was. You can't see it. But in the spiritual realm, God is there and He guides and He leads. He's calling on us to be as in tune with Him that we can follow that leading and guiding. So when Yeshua said, I'm the light of the world, He's saying that He's the source of life. And He also means that He is the guide to life. Light is essential for life. And He gives us life and He guides us in life. He doesn't just save us and then leave us, hope you make it. He's there to guide, to lead. He uses the Scriptures. And I'll tell you what, the more time you spend in the Word of God, the more able the Spirit is to lead you and guide you because He has something to guide you with. When you don't spend any time in in the Scriptures, it's like, I think the Lord wants me to do this. That's totally against the Word of God. But you don't know that because you're not reading. He's not going to lead you apart from the Scriptures. So that's why we need to pour ourselves into the Word of God. Be familiar with the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Read the Word of God. And then the Spirit of God can use that in our lives. I told you this story before, but I, I remember it so clearly as a young Christian, you know, memorizing Scripture, and one day something happened at the church, and, you know, I heard about it, and I was upset about it, because I'm like, well, they didn't talk to me about it, like, not that they needed to, you know, just my, my ego was getting ahead of me, so I picked up the phone to call the preacher to give him what for, and as I picked him up, Proverbs came to my mind, these six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, hands of shit, he that soweth discord among the brethren. So I hung the phone up. And I'm like, I don't need to be sowing any discord. But I'll tell you what, that's a, you get the Spirit of God in you through reading the Word of God, through memorizing the Word of God, through knowing the Word. It's easy for Him to guide you. Because, you know, there's truth there to guide you by. You've got to spend time in it. And so many people spend no time in the Word of God, then they just sit there and say, well, the Lord wants me to do this. This is His will. I was counseling a young couple who wanted to get married. They said, uh, I said, why do you think she should get married? They said, well, I think it's God's will to get married. I said, really? They said, yeah, how do you know that? I just think God wants us to. I said, let me ask you this. Are you having sex? And they both looked at me with a horrified look, as if to say, yeah. I said, let me tell you what God's will is. Here's God's will, your sanctification. You should avoid fornication. That's the will of God. I can tell you that from Scripture. So you're violating the known moral will of God and you're telling me you know the will of God. I said, how does that work? We've got to spend time in the Word so we know what it says. Alright. <clears throat> this is an interesting kind of side note to this here. Are you familiar with Qumran? You familiar with that? Anybody? Qumran? Qumran was a community, okay, apart from Israel, lived in the cliffs, you know, you're familiar with Dead Sea Scrolls? Everybody? 
Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran, that was their, their, there's the one that they kept the scrolls, alright? They were the Essenes, okay? If they'd have heard Yeshua, they'd have been thrilled to death. They would have loved this message. Because it was this kind of language that filled their community letters and religious treaties. They described themselves as the sons of light. And their hearts as being illumined with the wisdom of life. And while they regarded the temple priests as illegitimate sons of darkness. See, the Essenes were, they had pulled away from Jerusalem and the corruption that was there. And they felt themselves like the true community of God, the remnant of God's people, while they knew that what was going on in the temple was just blasphemy. So they, that's how they, the priests, they were sons of darkness. They also looked upon their interpretation of the Mosaic Law as the light of life. The Spirit of God which guided their lives was the Prince of Lights, among other titles, while the evil one who fights against them is called the Angel of Darkness. And it was their teaching that men walk according to either one of these. You either walk according to light or you walk according to darkness. Now, there's so many similarities in vocabulary and concept between Lazarus' writing and the sectarian documents found at Qumran that scholars believe that the author, they think it was John, I think it was Lazarus, was in some way associated with this community. I mean, the language, the similarities are just too strong. They say, you know, they, and I think that's very possible. So, Lazarus is using a lot of the language that we find, you know, in the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran, from their writings. Now, very different from the views of Qumran and the Essenes were the views of the Pharisees, okay? These were the, supposed to be the leaders in Jerusalem. Their views were very different. So they, um, almost as suddenly, okay, we got in, in verse 12 here the theme of light and darkness, alright? Boom, the Lord throws this theme out. And you figure, okay, now he's gonna go on and expound on this. This is it, people. It's done here. From 13 to the re- end of the chapter, no more about light and darkness. Because the Pharisees don't care about that. They get into an argument about, hey, who the heck do you think you are? Why are you saying this kind of stuff? Where, where do you get off doing this stuff? So from verse 13 to 20, he just returns to a set of arguments that are very similar to what's found in chapter 5, verse 30 through 47. And the remainder of the chapter shifts from light-darkness imagery to questions over Yeshua's authority. We'll come back to the light-darkness imagery when we get to chapter 9. Okay, But for now, they just want to argue about it. So they say, so the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. Now what I want you to see here is the Pharisees don't ask, hey, what do you mean you are? Why are you using the tetragrammaton to describe yourself? Why are you using the sacred name of God and saying you're Him? Why are you calling yourself like? What do you mean by that? How are we supposed to understand it? They don't ask one single question. And let me tell you something, people. Mark this down. There's one thing that characterizes a Berean. They ask questions. Okay? Bereans ask questions. The Pharisees weren't. But you have to ask questions. Listen, even when you think you know, ask questions. You know, because Christians have Christian language, you know. Just lay it at the feet of the cross. Ever heard that? When someone says that, say, what does that mean? And watch the deer in the headlights look. And they don't know what it means. I just heard other Christians say that and it sounded really good. What is it? It's just a platitude unless you can explain to me. What are you saying? What does that mean? We have to ask questions. 
You can't have a conversation with anybody. You might think you're in agreement with somebody, but because you don't know what their language means. We've got to ask questions. What do you mean by that? And it doesn't have to be offensive. It's just I want clarification. I want to know how you're using that so I know if I agree with you or don't agree with you. These Pharisees don't ask a single question. They don't care. They challenge Yeshua. They bring up His words from 531. Yeshua said this in 531. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And they use that against Him. Now listen, what He means here, if my testimony comes from myself, if it originates from me, if I'm a witness disconnected from the Father, I'm false. Because if you remember chapter 5, He said, I only do, I only say those things from the Father. So he's saying, I can't witness on my own. It's got to be connected with the Father. So that's what he's saying here. They're saying, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. All right? Now, Deuteronomy 19.15 talks about needing two or three witnesses. All right? But here's what we have to understand. First of all, who's that written to? Are those God's laws for himself? (laughs) Yeah. They're written to people. Okay? They're written to the people so they can understand how they're supposed to live. They're written to people who are liars. It's written to men because men are liars. We live in a world full of lies and deception. And if we, so if you're going to confirm something, they say, we need a couple witnesses here. We need two other people at least are going to say the same thing you said. All right? But that doesn't apply to God. Yeshua said, he answered them and he said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. You do not know where I came from or where I'm going. So Yeshua said, even if I testify about myself, it's true. I'm not subject, he's saying, to those laws for a world of liars. I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. He's saying, I'm eternal. I came from God. I'm going to God. I'm transcendent. I'm eternal. The law was not made for me. I'm God. D.A. Carson put it this way. He says, But in fact, the Pharisees have misunderstood Jesus' earlier utterances. Was certainly not saying that if he spoke without supporting witnesses, he was necessarily a liar. But that if he testified about himself, i.e. outside the framework he had just established, in which everything he said is nothing more and nothing less than what the Father gives him to say, then of course, that kind of claims he was making could not possibly be true. The first qualification of a witness is they have to experience what they're testifying about. I'll be a witness. Did you see it? No. Well, what kind of witness are you then? And see, the Jewish religious leaders spoke with authority about things they never experienced. They didn't even know God. They claimed to represent Him. Yeshua claimed to offer true testimony because He knew His own origin and destiny And the critics knew neither one of these things as they demonstrate. And Yeshua tells them, you judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. The Pharisees were evaluating by external facts that they thought they knew. They said, you were born in Galilee. He wasn't. They didn't even check it out. Okay, they're being superficial. Now, when Yeshua says here, I'm not judging anyone, you know, people go nuts about this. Oh, he did judge. Why did he say that? What he's saying here, he's comparing himself to the Pharisees. He says, I don't judge superficially like you judge. You guys judge superficially, I don't. Okay? I'm judging according to truth. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, I judge no man in the flesh. And what he meant is that I'm not judging superficially. 
Yeshua is not judging the way his opponents do. He says, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but the Father who sent me. So his judgment would be in perfect accord with the Father who sent him. At least seven times in this passage, Yeshua points to the fact that he is from the Father, he speaks on the authority of the Father, he's going to the Father, and does nothing on his own. He claims, in other words, that his authority is not owing to any human origin. It's owing to his relationship with God the Father. He says, even in your law, it has been written, the testimony of two men is true. This is fascinating here. He says to the Pharisees, your law. What's he talking about? He's talking about Torah. But he calls it their law. Well, he's the one who gave Torah. But he calls it their law because he is about to fulfill and do away with Torah. And he's about to bring in the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So he calls it your law. It's what you're basing things on. He says, I am he who testifies about myself and my Father who sent me testifies about me. No human witness can authenticate a divine relationship. Yeshua therefore appeals to the Father and Himself. There's no one else who can, He can appeal to. He's saying two reasons that my claim is valid. Number one, who I am. I'm God. Number two, my Father collaborates the witness. And he's God. Okay, there's your two witnesses. Alright? So they were saying to Him, where is your Father? Yeshua answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. D.A. Carson, commenting on this, writes this, Not infrequently in John, Jesus is saying something profound, only to have it misinterpreted by others. So here, Jesus has been explicating the unique relation He enjoys with the Heavenly Father as He bears witness to the truth. And His opponents want the Father identified, apparently thinking on a purely human plane. So Yeshua says, you know, I got the Father as my witness, and so what do they say? Where's your Father? This, I believe, is meant to be an attack on Yeshua. Again, this is, this is how these guys deal. They're not, they're not very good debaters. They just want to attack. They attack Nicodemus, now they're attacking him. A couple things maybe they may be saying here. Where's your father? They may be saying, listen, your father Joseph has been dead for some time. So are you claiming to talk to the dead? Because that's forbidden in the law, and we could stone you because of that. Alright? Or, and maybe more likely, I think they're accusing Yeshua of being an illegitimate child. As they do later in the Scriptures. Look what they say later in John 8. You are doing the deeds of your father, Yeshua says to them. And they said to him, we're not born of fornication. In other words, you're an illegitimate child. Your mother and dad weren't even married when you were born. So they're, they're attacking him. Who's your father? Where's your father? No matter what direction they're going with this, they're speaking. They're thinking in physical terms. They're not understanding who he is talking about. Watch what he says to these Pharisees, these leaders of the religion. You neither know me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. This is a second class conditional sentence. It's often called contrary to fact. What he's saying here, if you knew me, which you don't, then you'd know my Father, which you don't. All right? They prided themselves on knowing God. I mean, they claimed to be the representatives of God to the people. They thought they knew God better than anyone did, and Yeshua tells them, you don't even know God at all. Now, back in chapter 5, he said similar words. He says, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Now, watch what he says here. 
He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That excludes any and every religion. If you don't honor Yeshua, you don't know God. He's telling them, if I produce my Father, you wouldn't even know Him. You know why? He says, because you don't know Me. See, if you had known Me, if you, had, you would know the Father. And if you knew the Father, when I showed up, you'd know Me. Because I'm promised. All through the Scriptures, you study all day long, point to Me and you missed it. There's no other way to the Father except through the Son. Anybody, any religion that claims to know God apart from Yeshua doesn't know Him. They don't know the God of Scriptures. They just don't. You can't have a relationship with the Father without the Son. The God of the Scriptures is only known through the Son. The Lord, later on, He says to Philip, Philip asks, Lord, show us the Father. And He says to Philip, have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I, I'm demonstrating, I'm display, displaying the Father. And later on, he'll say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. It's impossible to know God except through the Son. Now, the Father theme and the corresponding questions as to what paternity Yeshua and the Pharisees might legitimately claim dominates the rest of this chapter. And these are explosive and dangerous claims that Yeshua is making here. Making about Himself, making about God. So Lazarus kind of pauses to comment on that in verse 20. And he says this, because Lazarus is almost like surprised. He's saying all this stuff and no one's killed him. So he says in verse 20, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. These words he spoke in the treasury. Here, Lazarus identifies for us exactly where he is. The treasury was located in the court of the women. Now, we've talked about the court of the women before. That's where the women went to worship. They could not go further beyond that unless special occasions to offer sacrifices. All right, the Gentiles only went to the outer court. Women could go in. The Jewish men could go further into the temple. All right, This court was about 200 square feet surrounded by a colonnade with which was located against the walls 13 trumpet-shaped chests collecting charitable contributions. This is what I find interesting about the temple. The court of the Gentiles got no way to give money. The collection is in the court of the women. So you had to be at least a Jew to get in there to give money. What's that picture saying? What's that telling us? God takes money from His people. He doesn't need it from the non-believers, okay? They're, courted, they're there to learn. They're there. Once they become a proselyte, then they can enter the court of the women. Once they're fully proselyted, they can get in that court. They can give. But there's 13 trumpet-shaped things, and they're all labeled with different things. This is for this. This is for that. This is, you know, they're all labeled. So you can give your, I want to give a little here, a little over there, whatever. They're all labeled so you can give your giving and whatever. All right? That was the most public part of the temple. So, <clears throat> he says, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. They're now so infuriated they didn't want to seize him and kill him. But they can't. They tried three times in this chapter unsuccessfully. Now here's the picture you got to get. He is in their house. You say, well, the temple's God's temple. Well, this temple was owned by them, basically, okay? 
They had the temple police at their disposal. They could tell those temple police to do whatever they want. But they can't touch Yeshua. Because he's in charge. He's in charge of his own destiny. It's the Father's plan. And man does not and cannot control these events. So he's standing right there. Right in the midst of the temple and they can't do anything about him. William Henderson, commenting on this, says this. It's pretty insightful. He says, against the wall in the court of the women stood 13 trumpet-shaped chests in which the people deposited their gifts for various causes. Hence, taking the court for the whole, this court was sometimes called the treasury. Here Jesus was teaching in the immediate proximity of the hall in which the Sanhedrin held, or used to hold, its sessions. So he's in the court of the women, and right adjacent to that is where the Sanhedrin met. All right? And though it is possible that this august body, so thoroughly hostile to Jesus, could almost hear the echo of his voice, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet arrived. I mean, he's in their house. He's right there, and they can't touch him. Psalm 32 says, verse 7, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from troubles. You surround me with songs of deliverance. People, Psalms 32 teaches us that our times are in His hands. And I think that's beautifully illustrated here. He's standing here. He is making them very angry. And they have the power, yet they can't do a thing. Because they really don't have any power. Because God has all the power. And listen, here's what I want you to get. This is true of every believer. There's not a thing that can happen to the saints of God that is not within the sovereign will of the great God. Nothing. Our life is the same as His. God is sovereign. And we can go in any situation, whatever the circumstance is, nothing happens to us apart from the sovereign will of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I thank You for the boldness of our Savior. Lord, I pray we would reflect the light that He is. That as people see us, Lord, they, the light would shine. That the darker the communities we're involved in, the brighter that light would shine. And people would see Your glory, Lord. Thank You for the opportunity to be Your sons, to be led of Your Spirit. May we be faithful, Lord, in following You. Amen.